0: We return this afternoon, dear brethren, to an investigation of what biblical unity is, using, as we should, the Word of God to be that mirror by which we see the image and the glory of Christ. And that glory is a magnificent glory when one truly beholds beautiful biblical unity. One is wont to say, behold! how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I hope you remember where we were last time. We were considering the similes that enable us to understand the spiritual truth that is involved in biblical unity. It is a truth that the natural man is not acquainted with, and therefore God utilizes the literary device of similes, whereby he points to things that are more familiar to draw our understanding into the spiritual and deeper truths that, once again, is not readily seen within the human race. Certainly, therefore, we would understand in that there are many manifestations of unity and togetherness under many colors and styles and definitions. But if it is a rare thing that the Word speaks of, if it requires the instrumentality of similes so as to enable us to see the spiritual blessing, then we should start this journey with realizing that until we've walked through those simile gates, we have not really entered into the path that leads to biblical unity. I hope your hearts will be open to receive how the Bible defines and describes this brotherly unity that God speaks of. Well, again, we were looking at the similes, and we were considering the exclusivity of the anointing oil. And we were seeing that, as we saw in previous studies, which taught us that the moral must come before the moving, we see that this is confirmed in the simile because the simile entails an exclusive concept, which is to say that biblical unity is not cheap and it will never flow out of or down from anointed Biblical unity begins with the precious, costly, sacred anointing that can only be obtained from the divine apothecary. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that as verse 2 teaches, this anointing, this unity, is like something. It is like the precious ointment that was upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. And you'll recall that Charles Simeon, speaking about the concept involved in verse 2, relayed how this precious ointment that can only be obtained from the sanctuary itself that was not to be compounded by any other entity except for those that were divinely appointed, and this oil was not to be placed upon mere flesh, but upon the chosen of God. But this oil eventually, as the psalm teaches, it goes down from the head, down through the garments, to the very skirts of the garment of the high priest. And this is to teach us that while the anointing starts from something very precious, something very exclusive, something very definitely placed in a particular way and operating with divine authority from heaven on down so that the entire process is controlled and ordered of God, it nonetheless is given with the ultimate attention or the ultimate, yes, intention of diffusing a beautiful blessing, in this case involving the aroma that would be diffused widely to all who were in the temple precincts. And so we see that while unity is not cheap, it is nonetheless, when properly engaged and approached toward, it is nonetheless for the benefit of all. Now you remember with me that Jesus taught in John chapter 10 and verse 5, that his sheep will not follow the voice of a stranger. And when we think about that principle as it relates to this anointing oil and how true biblical unity comes about, we recognize, starting with the imagery or the metaphor of a voice, we realize what Jesus is saying is that there may be gatherings of that which seemingly are religious engaged individuals that is to say they may seem to be jesus sheep but if they're following the voice of a stranger someone who has not entered in by the anointing of the holy spirit but has come up some other way well jesus is saying whatever you see out there among men in terms of gatherings and collectiveness if it isn't my voice that has beckoned them and called them to this place then it isn't my flock And so biblical unity is just not a matter of a matter of gatherings. It's a matter of that which has been gathered through the voice of the true shepherd. And when we again take that principle and we think about what this anointing oil speaks of, and we realize that this anointing oil was very special, it was, yes, costly, but it was also unique. It had a very special and definite and distinct aroma and so we can also say that Jesus' sheep will not follow the scent of a stranger. Any anointing that is compounded by man just does not smell right. Perhaps you've heard the statement in the past that it doesn't smell, it doesn't pass the smell test. Well, these things are maybe catchy, but they're also quite useful because the reality is that whenever a stranger who has not gotten his anointing from the divine apothecary because he has a calling to be within the true sanctuary, whenever a stranger comes with a different scent than the holy scent of Jesus Christ in his character and his dispositions then the real sheep will realize that this cannot be the one to whom I would gather because this ministry does not pass the smell test. And just as it is with voices, so it is with the anointing. Voices can sometimes be smooth words and fair speeches. Voices can be quite difficult initially to determine whether or not it is the voice of your Lord Jesus, or the voice of some imposter that is coming in his name. Remember, Jesus did say that if it were possible, even the very elect under certain conditions would be deceived. And so, in the interest of true biblical unity, it not only is imperative that we listen very attentively to the voices that are moving our souls and our spirits and beckoning us into some sort of collective program and purpose. It is also necessary, as I say, using the anointing oil as the imagery by which to discern. We need to discern whether or not this anointing that is on this individual, has it come from the divine apothecary? Does it have the right scent to it? Does it have the scent of holiness and of purity and of honesty and of integrity? These things are very important, dear brothers and sisters. Now I want to go on to give further attention to this first of two similes, that which relates to the high priest, before we get to the high place. And I want to point out to you that not only is the anointing precious and exclusive, but the high priest himself is an exclusive ministry. The idea of exclusivity, the idea of Unity starting from an anointing that God himself has initiated, from an office that God himself has substantiated, from a man that God himself has very definitely called. The idea that that is the beginning of unity is further confirmed, not just as I have stated by pointing us in the direction of this holy anointing that we recognize ultimately comes from the very temple of Almighty God and he is, a divi- he is the divine apothecary who alone knows the ingredients and the mixture, as it were, that makes up the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But then that anointing is placed on a single individual with respect to the simile that is teaching us how to think about these things. Numbers chapter 3 and verse 10 instructs Moses to appoint Aaron and his sons and that they should wait on their priest's office and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Now it seems to me that is a very clear statement of exclusivity, is it not? In this case, since there was an individual who always fills this office, That is, if we have the blessing of God's supply among us, and Israel did, God supplied Aaron. So we had a name, and the name was Aaron. And God said that Aaron should wait upon the priest's office. And he says, a stranger, someone I have not called, someone who is not qualified, should not come near that position, If he were to do so, he was to be put to death. Now, lest you think that we're spending too much time in Old Testament imagery, allow me to make a remark about a hermeneutical principle. There's a standard hermeneutical principle that in more modern times goes under the title of intertextuality. Intertextuality can be defined as the ways in which the meaning of a text is shaped by its relationship with other texts. I'm not going to digress into the background of how these terms take shape over time. I do know the history behind intertextuality, how it relates to biblical interpretation and deconstructionism and postmodern thought. I want to direct your thoughts specifically to a concept that is a genuine hermeneutic Principle. It is a true way by which we understand and interpret and apply the scriptures. Enlarging a little bit more on the idea of intertextuality, I give you the following statement. A text, in this case a biblical text, engages in a dialogue with other texts, other parts of the Bible, at the time it was written. So in other words, whenever Psalm 133 was written, it was making use of ideas that were already available within the Bible. And the same text continues to contribute to a dialogue with other texts, especially in the case of a biblical text, because its meaning is shaped by the wider canon of Scripture. The reason why I raise this observation as we continue to press forward in our studies, is to ensure that your hearts are dispositioned properly before God's Word and recognizing that this is how the Holy Spirit speaks to our lives today. I don't think I have to argue that Psalm 133 is a relevant text for 21st century believers. I don't think I have to argue that to you. But in terms of how we understand Psalm 133, I do want to emphasize this concept of intertextuality. Because what it points to is that you understand God's Word within the confines of God's canon. Because Psalm 133 was written, whenever it was written by David, by borrowing, borrowing, as it were, utilizing concepts and truths that the Holy Spirit had already inspired. In this case, as we will be emphasizing, the idea of the anointing oil, the idea of Aaron in this first simile. But then Psalm 133 becomes a context or further information that is then utilized by subsequent inspired scripture, as time goes on and God dispenses more of His truth and will to our lives, we look back to Psalm 133 to inform our hearts as to how we should understand what God is saying to us, even within the New Testament. And this will be very important to comprehend and make use of within these studies, and the Lord willing, we'll get to some of that application before we're through today. But the thing that I'm emphasizing is if you try to interpret Psalm 133 by stepping out of the canon of Scripture and thinking about other concepts and other ways of speaking about unity, and you don't stay within the canon and the intertextuality of the Bible, then what you have done, and many do this, this is their hermeneutic approach, you step outside of the Bible, you are adding other sources of revelation and illumination, and you're acting as if God does not speak to us Within the context of his word, we need something outside of his word. We need cultural influences. We need the idea, the ideas of modern philosophers and sociologists and the instincts of our times to help us to moderate or to better curate and to sort of bring us to a more mature understanding of what unity should look like. So the use of Aaron and the use of the high priest, and the idea of a hierarchical arrangement that is very obviously communicated in Psalm 133, in verse 2, some would argue that, well, now we need to moderate those concepts, and they would be going outside of the Bible in order to do so. So I'm just taking a moment to stress to you that my hermeneutic commitment is intertextuality, that this is an organic revelation that alone is the word of God and it, is, has, it has been purposely given by God and these texts inform one another. And when you stay within the entire narrative of the Bible and you make your interpretation within the confines of that narrative, then you will arrive at the mind of God. It may be offensive to the culture, but it will be the mind of God. And so I come back to Numbers chapter 3, and I emphasize to you that how we, in the 21st century, as a New Testament church seeking in our times to look for and find and enter into an advanced biblical unity, we do need to pay attention to how this starts With the high priest being involved, what does that have to do with anything we should be asking ourselves? And why was the simile of a high priest used? Well, because again of what God had already revealed. And this text is pointing back to the high priest. And as I'm saying, it's speaking about the need of exclusivity before you get to inclusivity. You have to start with a truly anointed arrangement before you would ever arrive at genuine biblical unity. Now, this is not about validating a particular man or a particular name. It is about a position. It's about an arrangement. It's interesting how Psalm 133 and verse 2 is written... Because it says, it's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard. And then it says, even Aaron's beard. As if it's saying, here is one example of how that anointing functioned. Here is the quintessential demonstration of how this anointing concept should work. This anointing has manifested itself in many other situations, whether it would be David or whether it would be Isaiah or whether it would be even other men in church history whom God has anointed and He has begun a good work in and through them and alongside of others. There have been other anointed individuals assisting the work, but it has started with an anointing from above and it has worked its way down into the body at large and has brought about the sweet aroma of a genuine biblical unity. So I'm saying to you that Aaron stands in the office of the high priest. Numbers chapter 3 and verse 10 says that Aaron should wait on the priest's office. That's interesting because the because the ESV translates that same word, guard. They should guard the priest's office. The Hebrew term is samar. That is translated wait on the priest's office in Numbers chapter 3 and verse 10. In the Septuagint, it's Fulasso. Both of these words mean indeed to guard. Like a soldier would guard a prisoner, "Fulaso," in particular, and samar as well can be used in that sense, as I will show you in a moment. It means to watch over, to preserve. One translation uses this language, be responsible for. You shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall be responsible for the priest's office. And so you see what is happening here is that there's an anointing that just keeps emphasizing that biblical unity is all about the call and the purpose of God and it must be guarded and kept within the divine, within the Word of God, within a pure and true move of the Holy Spirit. It must be guarded. Think of the way in which this term has been translated. I give you two initial examples and you'll see how they relate to one another. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, we are told that the Lord God took the man, that is Adam, and He put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. The word translated keep is the Hebrew word samar. So Adam was to guard and protect this holy place. We recognize that Adam failed to protect Eden. Adam chose a form of unity that destroyed the entire project of God. It is a very simple demonstration, but it's at the core of all that humanity presently suffers. you remember with me, of course, that within this garden situation, within this temple arrangement... We had two members of God's holy church, one by the name of Adam, the other by the name of Eve. And there was unity and blessedness, and it was the prospect of a wonderful future for the human race. But one of the members of this church was tempted by the devil, and she succumbed to that temptation. Adam was tasked with guarding the sacredness of God's program and his plan, Adam was granted an anointing by which he was not to champion human unity as an end to itself, but only as it functions in conformity to the will of God. And he violated that obligation. And as a result, there has been division and there has been sorrow and pain and suffering in the human race ever since. And indeed, you will remember the division that even manifested itself between Adam and Eve just after the fall with Adam blaming Eve and so on. Well, then consider the language of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. So God drove Adam out of the Garden of Eden and He placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You see what is happening here is where Adam failed to preserve holiness to preserve the tree of life to preserve the truth in the evangelium the gospel the message the source of all of man's happiness the tree of life where adam failed god did not change the plan and decide that the new project is going to be the social blessing and benefit of mankind and we'll just put a blessing upon whatever the arrangement is, however it looks, whatever Adam's family looks like now. I just want them all to be happy. No, he put him out of the sacred environment. And then he protected the tree of life. As if to say, if you're going to enjoy another experience of beautiful biblical unity, you're first going to have to enter into my redemption so that you can pass by the flaming sword of judgment through the blood of Jesus and partake of the tree of life. You can't get there just through a social endeavor because there are angels that are guarding the path toward the life that brings the unity that once was available to humanity but was sinned away. And so you see with me that the language that is used along these lines is still pertinent to the work of God in our time. This, again, goes back to intertextuality. To understand the way in which Aaron and his sons were called to guard the sacredness of that anointing, the sacredness of the high priest's office, to not let a stranger into the place that God had called them to. That kind of obligation is still before us, brothers and sisters. Think of the language that Paul uses When writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22, he tells Timothy, do not put men into the ministry with little concern about their qualifications. He says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. That involves Timothy's own life but it also involves how he's representing God in terms of how he's guarding and protecting the sacred space of God's church. Paul was certainly one who guarded the ministry of the word. And Timothy was no casual selection from the apostle Paul in terms of a man that he mentored into the ministry and and, and into a role of authority and leadership and so on. So you see with me on the one hand, in the New Testament, there is clearly a leadership structure. But that leadership is tasked with the duty of preserving God's purity. And they must do this within their own lives. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, in terms of the canonical record of what Paul ministered to the churches of Jesus Christ. Oh, Timothy, keep or as the New King James Version has in the ESV, guard that which is committed to thy trust. I just emphasize that, dear brothers and sisters, to you, that you might not entirely see, perhaps, how this approach is in keeping with a quest for biblical unity, but that is exactly why these teachings are taking the direction that they are. Because the way that the Bible itself directs the pursuit of unity is along these lines. It is like an anointing that starts from above and comes down upon the head, even the head of the high priest. This exclusive office that God himself has chosen, that a stranger must not enter into. I hope you are recognizing The multiple layers that God has instituted whereby to protect the purity of his work if men would give attention to this. First of all, the anointing itself is exclusive. It is not to come upon a stranger. But then the high priest, it's the high priest office is exclusive. A stranger should not enter in. And then they who are even in the office of the high priest. In other words, Presently in our own day, they who are in legitimate places of ministry should appropriately guard the ministerial calling. They should train those who have the signs of true callings from Almighty God in terms of the anointing that manifests in their lives and the way in which that brings forth the appropriate fruit and the aroma of the Lord Jesus Christ and the voice of the shepherd, that they should guard that office gift. Because as has been demonstrated throughout church history, when unity is sought through the multiplication of ministries in the interest of a fast-growing movement, it may last for some time, but it always ends in misery. And so we would do better if needed, to slow the pace down, to guard the ministerial office, to make sure and intercede for as needed for a true anointing from heaven to come down upon those who are called specifically by God into the ministerial office and they will have the right position and the right disposition and they will minister the voice and aroma of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessing of the Holy Spirit will be commanded... The Scriptures tell us under that arrangement by God in due time. Well, you've heard of the demonstration of manners that was put forth in the Romantic era through the writing of Jane Austen entitled Pride and Prejudice. I would skip out of that textual environment and bring you into the text of the Bible and bring to your attention... The Bible's story of something similar that we will call pride and punishment. And it's the example of that which occurred to an eighth century king of Judah by the name of Uzziah. And we will see in this man's life that there was a violation of these stipulations that we have just read to you out of Numbers chapter three and verse 10. And we'll, I hope, be able to confirm to your spirits how seriously God takes these ideas that until you protect the anointing, until you protect the office gift of whatever calling that is legitimate in our times, and we'll get to that ultimately, hopefully at the conclusion of this message. But again, the intertextuality doesn't get into the office gifts of Ephesians 4.11. We'll get to those eventually. But it shows us the paradigm, the pattern, so that when you get to the office gifts that are appropriate for New Testament times, you recognize that they are to be thought about within the text of the Bible. So that Psalm 133 definitely has application to the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Because there are individuals who fit within that category while stating and fully recognizing and glorying in the fact that Jesus Christ is certainly our High Priest. But that was always the case even in Old Testament times. It was still under the sovereignty of Almighty God. I realize that there's a special sense in which Christ is made the High Priest of the New Testament church. We will indeed get to those observations. I'm just feeling a little bit needful, I'm feeling it's a little needful for me to give you a little foreshadowing so you follow what I'm saying. I'm saying that the language of verse 2 of Psalm 133 is precisely what we need to pay attention to in order to Understand how this unity works. So again, until we protect the anointing itself and we have deference toward that anointing, we understand its exclusivity and sacredness. Until we recognize that that anointing just doesn't fall in any old place. It, if it begins upon the ministry that God has called, until we understand and protect those things, we haven't begun to set ourselves up for biblical unity. We've turned everything upside down and thought that we would get biblical unity through the path of democracy and popular sentiment and uh, cultural accommodation. And we're never going to get there. So I want you to see how when the high priest's office is not properly guarded by man, that God Himself still demonstrates His concern and His interest and his demand that this office be kept sacred, I turn your attention to Second Chronicles chapter 26, and here we are reading about Uzziah. We read in the 15th verse that Uzziah made in Jerusalem engines or machines invented by cunning men, to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks or the corner defenses to shoot arrows and great stones withal. This is almost like Leonardo da Vinci. You know, These are incredible inventions that are occurring in the 8th century B.C. War machines. And Uzziah's name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped by God until he was strong. Then verse 16 says, But when he was strong his heart was lifted up to destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord God to burn incense upon the altar of incense. Now pause with me for a moment to think about the context that is presenting itself to us. Here is one of the better kings of Judah, Uzziah by name. And the Bible itself says that he is being helped marvelously. And within the context of Old Testament times, through the invention of these engines of war, that we could argue that God's anointing and blessing is passing on to cunning men to understand. And this would result in the protection of God's people and thereby facilitating a greater unity and peace. And uh, the people of God coming together and being protected and being blessed and growing up in the purposes of God. This is not an exaggeration. I'm just telling you in a summarial fashion what was emerging under Uzziah's anointed reign. Now, Uzziah was anointed as a king. And when this king was operating under the position and the calling of God, you notice the anointing was flowing down from Him to cunning men, and they were working together, and they were building up the kingdom of God, and spiritual warfare as it relates to our time was manifesting itself, and they were getting stronger, and they were getting more capable of defeating the um, the, the attacks of the enemy and so on. All of this is boding well for God's people. But What I want you to see is that when Uzziah, Uzziah, when Uzziah steps out of his anointing and he takes upon himself a role and a function that God had not called him to, all of this begins to fall apart. As we go on to read in the 26th chapter of 2 Chronicles, beginning in the 17th verse, Azariah, we are told, the high priest went after uzziah when he entered into the temple of the lord to offer incense and with him were 80 priests of the lord valiant men what were they doing what was azariah tasked to do he was god's high priest and he was saying if god's people are going to be blessed uzziah I am thankful that you're the king and God is helping you marvelously. And it's a wonderful thing that is happening in Israel. And you might think that all the attention and all the focus and all the duty should be summed up in you. And as a result, the blessing will flow more and more to everybody. But you are incorrect. We have to observe the callings and purposes of God and stay within, in, and stay within the anointings that God has, that God has designed. Assigned is what I want. That God has assigned in order for this to work well. So Azariah is protecting the sacred space. He is protecting the anointing. And he has 80 other priests that are joining alongside of him. In verse 18 we read, And they withstood King Uzziah and said unto him, this is in the King James, the new King James version, it is not for you. In the King James, it's, It appertaineth not unto thee. It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you are transgressing your calling. You are transgressing your anointing. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Well, I give you the words of Leonard Verduin, on this series of events, he writes, Here we make the acquaintance of a good king of Judah, an exceptional man, so good in the sight of God that he was, quote, marvelously helped of God. Everything to which he put his hands was a success, but he died in disgrace nonetheless, excluded from the house of the Lord. He was deprived of his scepter. Someone was put in his place. Later, after he died, they buried him not in the royal palace burial place, but in the burial field which belongeth to the kings. What had gone wrong? Why the demotion? It was occasioned by one rash act. Uzziah, the king, went into the holy place to perform the functions of the priest. Think of that. If an anointed king of Israel, who had been marvelously helped of God, was not allowed to transgress into the ministry of the high priest, then should we not learn a lesson from this when we think about biblical unity? And should we not ask ourselves, do we protect this office gift in a way that is commensurate with intertextuality in a way that is commensurate with the teaching of the canon of Scripture? Do we allow the Bible itself to teach us in three simple verses what it takes to get to biblical unity? Do we recognize that unity is like the anointing oil that ran down upon the head, upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the very skirts of his garment, but it starts upon Aaron and down to his garments by metaphoric analogy, down to the rest of God's people. Remember the language of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. While you think about what we just read here, Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he had turned leprous, dear brothers and sisters, under the judgment of God. Because perhaps you didn't know this, but when Azariah and 80 priests went in to stop Uzziah from violating the calling, from transgressing and getting out of his calling and into the calling of God's ministry, he wouldn't listen. He felt that he had been empowered. He felt strong. God had done something in his life and he felt I have the ability to lead this whole nation myself. And they pled with him, don't do it. And they tried to get him out and he resisted. And then God himself judged him and he turned leprous. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train, the hem of his garment Fill the temple. You should see in this imagery the possibility of unity coming to the nation of Israel after all. Because if men don't preserve these sacred truths, God Himself still teaches them and still protects them. In the year that this man who was blessed of God and had an anointing, but sought to transgress the limits of what God had called him to and raise himself up to a position that he was not given from God, in the year that his efforts ended, God was still on his throne. And we are told that his train, think of it, think of the imagery, it's like the high priest, it's like Psalm 133, that His garment and the hem of His garment fill the temple. In other words, the glory of the Lord, the blessings of the Lord God, they distribute themselves all among or among all of the myriad of hosts that gather before His glorious throne. That's the way unity works. It's the way it will work for eternity. It observes the unique and sovereign place of Almighty God. It recognizes the only true anointing that can come from the Holy Spirit. But it realizes that through love, that anointing flows out to all. Dear brothers and sisters, this is the way that this anointing works. Even the pouring of the oil is an act of exclusion. Take, for example, the language of Leviticus chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. We read, Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was therein, and he sanctified them. When he anointed the tabernacle and everything within it, it was sanctified, it was set apart. And he sprinkled thereof upon the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all his vessels, both the laver and his foot, To sanctify them. Now so far what we have is similar to what we spoke about last Sunday. We have various pieces of furniture, if you will, inanimate objects within the sacred space of God's temple. And when they are anointed with oil, they are set apart and sanctified and no one would dream of going home and cobbling together their own little altar of incense or their own little lampstand and saying, well, mine looks pretty good. Why don't we substitute mine for yours? Or why don't we add them all together? And, and why don't we just all get into this work of God wherever we feel like? And we'll all just sort of join in and everybody will be happy and we'll all just get along and we'll all feel good about this this will just cultivate unity among us. No one would have that attitude toward the sacred objects of the temple. Amen. Just like, as I said in our own time, no Christian looks at the object of the Bible, which at its basic elements is paper and ink. But because it is the printing of God's Word, in that sense it has an anointing to it, if you understand what I mean. And no one treats that object with disrespect, even if it's a tattered old Bible. Even if it's not your favorite version, you still respect that Bible. But verse 12 of Leviticus 8 goes on to say the same act, the same principle, the same process is to be applied to Aaron. And Moses poured of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to set him apart. I hope this is coming across to our spirits, dear brothers and sisters. It sounds counterintuitive to our times that unity begins by a proper exclusivity, a proper setting apart in an observance of that which is special and unique. But that's exactly what God requires because the glory must all be directed back to him. It must be the Lord's doing so that whatever is marvelous in our eyes is always kept within the definition of this is the Lord's doing. If the anointing is not about sanctification from the top down, then there is no path to biblical unity. The emphasis over and over again is that biblical unity begins from an anointing that sanctifies and purifies and sets a man apart for God's service. And that individual is to keep himself and to guard what is pure and what is right and what is holy, to guard God's deposit. That is his calling. He must have a holy life. He must have a holy character. He must have the fruits that give off the aroma, as it were, of that anointing in order for the prospects of a unity to ultimately begin to be brought about through the work of the Holy Spirit. No program, no music no seminary degree, no carnal charisma, no social gospel, no grassroots movements, no populist sentiment can do what only the sacred anointing of God can do. Cultural accommodation is not the path toward a better unity. Sanctification, in the interest of cultural cleansing, is the path to the unity that God will bless. One of the other songs of degree make this point when Psalm 127 in verse 1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord is building the house. And what we're learning is they who are called to Build God's house, dear brothers and sisters, are the sanctified, anointed of the Holy Spirit, instruments of Almighty God. Consider the words of a man who built a crystal cathedral. His name is Robert Schuler. You've probably heard of him in conjunction with a few things. The crystal cathedral, for one, perhaps the weekly hour of power, TV program that he began which while he was alive reached 1.3 million viewers and was shown within 156 different countries of the world and now his grandson Bobby Schuler continues to broadcast and it's said that he reaches 2.2 million people every week i assume that those statistics are still relevant They might be a little dated from the sources I work from. But Robert Schuller built a crystal cathedral. Robert Schuller was a man who presented an anointing and a charisma. And he was one who advocated unity and togetherness. And many, 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 many voices have bought in to that description of unity and that path toward unity. But the man who built the crystal cathedral had this to say, and I quote, this is out of his book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation, written in 1982. Classical theology, Schuler says, has erred, or erred, depending on how you like to pronounce that word, has erred in its insistence that theology be, quote, God-centered and not man-centered. Sin is defined as any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. And what is hell? To Schuller, it is the loss of pride that naturally follows separation from God, the ultimate and unfailing source of our soul's sense of self-respect. A person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. The cross sanctifies the ego trip. Now, if you understand Robert Schuler, and I could give you many more quotes along these lines... But what I'm manifesting to you is, though this man is in a position of spiritual authority, claims an anointing, and is the voice and was the voice for unity and methodologies toward unity that are very, very influential, continuously in our own times, what I'm saying to you is that this man did not ever understand the sacredness and the holiness of God's word and God's purpose and God's plan. But I chose Robert Shuler within this teaching in order to demonstrate something to you that I can only spend so much time with, so I'll run through it somewhat quickly. When you're acquainted with Robert Shuler and you know his life and connections, you realize that If you look, as it were, backwards, which is to say a little bit in the past, but also somewhat sideways, because we're also talking about contemporaneous events. If you understand Robert Shuler, then you'll understand Billy Graham, who was a great friend of Robert Shuler. And then if you understand Robert Shuler and you look a little bit forward, you'll have a better understanding of Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel. And from Chuck Smith, you get to Lonnie Frisbee. And from Smith and Frisbee, you get to John Wimber. In the mix of this, you get to Mike Bickle. And then you quickly get to Mark Driscoll. To one side of this is Rick Warren. To the other side is the Gospel Coalition. And I won't give you all the names that are related to the Gospel Coalition because this gets a little sticky, but what I have just stated to you and demonstrated is, is if you now look around after all of those very real connections, you will realize that you are smack dab in the middle of modern evangelicalism where the leaders are many, but the qualifications are wanting. And if that doesn't demonstrate to you the need to hear the ideas that we are ministering to your hearts about, Where does real biblical unity come from? And to think about it along the lines of this obligation to honor and to see as sacred and to guard and to respect the anointing of the Holy Spirit and men who occupy positions of leadership who are sanctified and set apart and walk with God and have holy dispositions and character and not just a charismatic position and a program. Because all those names that I arrayed together, dear brothers and sisters, they are not put together in a slanderous narrative of guilt by association. I know some of those names are relatively well known. And I know that others who hear these teachings will recognize many of those names. And many will understand the interrelationships that I'm pointing to. Some better than some of you. But leaving aside a much bigger story, I put out that statement to your hearts in order to demonstrate the history of inattention to the biblical path, to real biblical unity. And there is no way to resolve this except through repentance to the degree that we've participated in that kind of process where we've multiplied men in positions of leadership with little regard for Holy Spirit calling and whether or not they live holy, sanctified lives and they protect the Word of God and they protect the truth of God. The only way toward This blessed, sacred thing where God genuinely commands the blessing is to pay attention to the similes, to go to these gates of similes that are blocking, as it were, that you have to go through, you have to open in order to get to the path that leads to real biblical unity. You understand what I'm saying? You have to realize that that path to real biblical unity, you're not on, it's blocked to you until you understand these two similes and you walk through them. And by virtue of the hermeneutical principle of intertextuality, it is entirely appropriate that I stress the implications of the utilization of Aaron as the high priest and the exclusivity and the sacredness and the care and the concern that is associated with all of that. Michael Horton, a notable Reformed minister, relays a radio interview he once had with Robert Schuller. He says, I asked Dr. Schuller when Schuller was alive, of course. Schuller is not alive any longer. I asked Dr. Schuller how he would interpret the following admonition from Paul to Timothy. And then Michael Horton began to read to Dr. Schuller in this radio interview, Paul's language from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5 petty, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. But Horton says before, I was even able to compose my question. My distinguished guest immediately responded to these apostolic words by saying, I hope you don't preach that it will hurt a lot of beautiful people. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, these are serious matters. I feel these are matters that only the Holy Spirit can break through and make meaningful to the hearts in our time. Because what surrounds Shuler and Billy Graham and Mike Bickle and Chuck Smith and John Wimber and once upon a time Mark Driscoll and Rick Warren and I could add other names and it's not my heart to speak ill of my brothers, but I'm not speaking about them as such. I'm talking about the office gift that they deign to occupy. And I'm saying to the extent that they don't guard and protect that which is holy to the extent as all of them have to one degree or another. Many of them have stood in Schuller's pulpit and have said laudatory things about this man. It is a fact and it betrays a very serious lack of spiritual discernment and manifests a vacancy of a sacred interest in protecting that which is pure and holy before God. And so they build their churches, they build their crystal cathedrals, they build their mega enterprises, largely because they don't preach things that will hurt all the beautiful people. Well, dear friends, we don't want to hurt beautiful people wherever beautiful people are. And I don't mind using that loosely, beautiful people, meaning the human race, we don't want to hurt them either. But we want to call them out of darkness into God's marvelous light. We want to espouse them onto one husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to present them holy and without spot and without wrinkle before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that George Barna, a Christian pollster, for lack of a better way of defining what, at least in part, this man is involved with. But the Barner Research Group, after doing polling within American Christianity, made this conclusion. Barner writes, In short, the spirituality of America is Christian in name only. We desire experience more than knowledge. We prefer choices to absolutes. We embrace preferences rather than truths. We seek comfort rather than growth. Faith must come on our terms or we reject it. We have enthroned ourselves as the final arbiters of righteousness, the ultimate rulers of our own experience and destiny. We are the Pharisees of the new millennium. That doesn't sound like the church of Jesus Christ to me. Think of what this anointing goes on to demonstrate. The way in which it is further expressed when we think about the high priest. The language of Leviticus 21 and verse 10 emphasizes all the more how set apart the high priest is to be. We read, and he that is the high priest among his brethren. Notice with me, by the way, that at this point, it's not about a name. My observations that I just gave a moment ago when I mentioned the names of several men, some of whom are still alive, most of whom are still alive. My observations are not about these men. I have no particular personal vendetta or whatever the word would be. I have no particular negative feelings toward these men. This is about understanding how God has designed beautiful biblical brotherly unity. It's like how things work through the high priest, the Bible says. And we read in Leviticus 21, he that is the high priest among his brethren whoever it is whatever his name is upon whose head the anointing oil was poured and that is consecrated to put on the garments shall not uncover his head he shall not rend his clothes If we continue to read within the following verses, we read he cannot touch a dead body, he cannot leave the sanctuary, he cannot marry a widow, he cannot marry a divorcee. We learn that his garments themselves were exclusive in Exodus chapter 28 and also in Exodus chapter 29. We read about the turban, and the holy crown that was to be put upon this mitre that said, Holy to Yahweh, written on it. He was to have a gold, blue, purple, and scarlet ephod. He was to have a breastplate with 12 gems, three rows of four gems spaced across this breastplate. He was to have two onyx stones and the two golden clasps that held this breastplate over his shoulder. He was to have the belt or the girdle, the robe or the curious girdle, the the blue tunic, the upper robe, and the golden bells and pomegranates on the bottom of which were to be hung. And then beneath that, the linen breeches. And then he was to be given this interesting and mysterious mechanism of understanding the will of God called the Urim and the Thummim. All of these things, if you think about the imagery that is being presented before you, all of this presents to you someone who is in a very special and sacred position. Now, ultimately, this points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Keeping in mind the truth of intertextuality, We see that in the New Testament, understanding who the high priest was and what those spiritual principles involve is still incredibly relevant. For example, in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, we read, Now, when these things were thus ordained, that is the arrangement of the temple religious practices, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood. You see how the New Testament continues to set before us the exclusivity of the high priest. In chapter 8, We see how this concept is applied directly and preeminently to Jesus Christ. In verse 1 we read, Now of these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched in not man. And in chapter 3 of the same book the epistle to the Hebrews in verse 1 we read wherefore holy brethren partakers partakers of the heavenly calling consider the apostle and high priest of our profession Jesus Christ I hope you see dear brothers and sisters as I stated at the outset of this message and as was always hovering in the background that the specific application of these ideas is in acknowledgement of Jesus Christ himself as our high priest and that the exclusivity of Jesus and the anointing that was upon him and the sacredness of his person and the acknowledgement and the worship and the protecting of all of those ideas are absolutely critical for biblical unity to occur. But the reason why I didn't simply place all of the emphasis on Jesus Christ Himself is because as this is practically speaking worked out in our churches, among ourselves as the gathered people of God, we must see that there still is a functional place, a place within which there are those who fill positions of spiritual authority and calling. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 says that this same Jesus, the one who is ultimately our high priest, yet He has called some to function within the church. He has called apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And when we think about how these ideas apply in our own time, and the way in which these ministerial gifts are occupied by all sorts of individuals who were never called, who don't have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, who don't live sanctified lives. And I'm not trying to be cute or clever when I say, who don't have beards. That we can just bypass that observation. But when we do, we leap out of intertextuality. We leap out of the canon of scripture to understand what is the implication and the coordination of the high priest with how biblical, op- biblical unity should operate within New Testament times. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? And the implication is no. And the church of Jesus Christ or the churches of Jesus Christ need to wake up to that. Not everyone who claims they're an apostle, and there have been all sorts of people inside and outside the charismatic community that claim to be apostles or bishops or pastors or ministers of one stripe or another. And we don't seem to recognize that we should be asking the question, are you really? And we learn through painful experience that many who are propped up As those who are bringing about some kind of new move of God, some kind of collectivizing work, you know, some sort of movement that is gaining followers. We seem to have to learn the hard way that if it wasn't started by the Lord, if the Lord didn't start to build this house, you're laboring in vain. It might go up quick but it also comes down very quickly. I will conclude, dear brothers and sisters, this afternoon by just reminding you of the fact that as it was with Aaron, so it is in the New Testament. There are specific qualifications that must be met for someone to be in the office gift within the church of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives us a whole list of these qualifications. We won't look through that list presently, but I'll point you to the second verse, which says that this pastor must therefore have the following qualifications. What I'm stressing is what is clear in the Greek. Verse 2 starts with the Greek word, day. A very simple word, but it means must. Must, therefore, ton episkopon. This overseer who will function in our times in a position similar to Aaron. There are qualifications that must be met. One of which is he must be the husband of one wife. And I realize there's all kinds of ways you can interpret that if you're willing to go outside of the canon of Scripture. You stay within the canon of Scripture, you easily coordinate Aaron's beard with the reality that the New Testament teaches that leadership within the church of Jesus Christ is limited to the male gender. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse th- verse 15 says that the man of God must study. To show himself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is similar to the obligation of Second Timothy chapter three and verse two, that he is to be didacticon, apt to teach, able to teach. It also correlates with Second Timothy chapter three and verse six. That he is not to be a novice. There are qualifications, is what I'm stressing. So that the man who is at the head of a work doesn't wind up being a shame to the body of Christ by moral failures, by doctrinal error. Saying such nonsensical things as the cross sanctifies the ego trip. Dear friends, we have all kinds of unity that has been brought about through the methods of men like Robert Schuller. What we lack is the kind of unity that pays attention to the teaching of Psalm 133 and recognizes all the implications of the simile that Aaron presents to us in teaching all of the attention that we must first give to the sacred the holy calling of God. If we're ever going to reach beautiful biblical unity, we're going to have to start paying attention to the qualifications that start right from the top. Lord willing, we'll continue with this again next time and get to the second simile, as the Lord allows. May the Lord bless the word to your hearts.